it can definitely be nerve wracking when you're getting started because when you're investing in direct mail, I mean, you have to be willing to pay for a few months and know that it, it could be a few months before you get your first deal. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode and the interview with our best ever guest, I want to mention FunNet Flip because FunNet Flip is an online lender that gives you fast, convenient access to really affordable money that you need for your flip project. So if you're doing residential flips, then the main thing I imagine that you're focused on, uh, or the main two things, are the deal and the money. Uh, so if you've got the deal pipeline, but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a, uh, a group that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. The founder of Fund That Flip is Matt Rodak, and he's actually one of my very first guests on the show. It's episode number seven. Um, so if you have a chance, go check that out too. Familiarize yourself with Matt and what he's all about. But when you're needing money and you want an online lender that provides fast, convenient access to affordable capital for your flipping projects, then fund that flips the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt. And uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. Uh, so go to fundnetflip.com forward slash best ever and get some money for your flipping projects. Hi, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless, and I hope you're having a wonderful best ever week. Um, with us today, we have a real estate investor who has just recently gotten into, uh, well, just recently started his own real estate investing company. He's, he's been at it for about a year now, and he's got quite an academic uh, background and accomplished professional background outside of real estate. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to hear how he has, um, how things have gone uh, over the first year of his business uh, and uh, the lessons that he's learned. So that's going to be our focus today. So with us today, we have Chad Benedict. How are you doing, Chad? I'm good, Joe. Thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure, my friend. Nice to nice nice to get to know you a little bit and looking forward to diving in. A little bit about Chad. He is an Ivy League graduate. He now owns um, and runs his own business full-time and continues to consult in higher education. And um, by that, I mean uh, before real estate investing, he, was a, he had a successful career at a university um, and university administration and leadership. He began wholesaling real estate in 2015, and he did five deals in 2015 as a wholesaler. Uh, he's based, he's also a licensed realtor, and he's based in Dallas, Texas. Uh, you can say hi to him at, and his brother uh, <laughs> at benedictbrothers.com. Um, actually, his two brothers, Chris and Dustin. Yes, yes, I have two. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, so all three of the gang. Um, you can say hi to them at benedictbrothers.com. With that being said, Chad, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on? Sure. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Yeah, as you said, I have a, a background in higher education, working at universities. I've had a fairly successful career doing that for a long time. That's kind of what I jumped into right after college myself, uh, working in fundraising, uh, alumni relations for universities. Uh, that type of thing. Did that for 
a long time, went to back to grad school, actually got a master's degree in higher education as well, and then took another job after that doing fundraising. I was up in Boston for a couple of years. And about a couple of years ago, I decided, I decided two things. Number one, so my whole family lives in Dallas, and I really miss them uh, being up in Boston and just kind of wanted to come back and be closer to home. And number two, I just could not deal with the Boston weather. So I just got the heck out of there. <laughs> and thankfully, thankfully, I missed last winter with the nine feet of snow. But that's, oh, wow. yeah. you know, that's kind of what prompted me to, to move back home to Texas. And when I did that, I thought to myself, you know, uh, I really enjoy working in higher education and what I do. And I could always go uh, back and just get another job doing that. But I thought, you know, I'd like to try something different. Uh, you know, it's a time of my life when I can just, you know, start my own business, do something new. And that's kind of what I decided to do. And very quickly, when I decided to start my own business, you know, I have a lot of friends who have startup companies. It's mostly in the tech sector, which is not my background. But I very quickly zeroed in on real estate as uh, an opportunity that I thought I could get into uh, pretty quickly. And it really has, uh, as you know, uh, long-term prospects for, for building wealth and allowing you to, to work for yourself and, uh, you know, achieve financial freedom. So that's kind of the, the shorter version of how I eventually ended up back in Dallas and uh, jumping into real estate. Obviously, Dallas, as you know, is a uh, coming from Fort Worth is a really great real estate market right now as well. So it's a, it's a good place to be. You did fundraising in Boston. What were you raising funds for? Uh, I was working at Harvard University, actually raising funds for the university as part of their campaign. So, uh, which interestingly enough, my background, uh, I think in higher education and in fundraising is it's a lot of the similar skills to what I'm now applying in real estate, which is you know, when I go out and visit, when I used to go out and visit with somebody, uh, you know, alum trying to uh, connect with them about what's going on at the university and get them to contribute money, it's very much the same skills that I use now in real estate and that I, I go out, I meet somebody for the first time and I'm trying to convince them to sell their house to me. So I have to build a relationship with them very quickly, build trust and uh, convince them that, you know, I can help them achieve their goals. And that's uh, very similar to what I had been doing before as well. So it, it's a nice parallel. When you took a look at all the different types of strategies that you could do starting out in real estate from storage units, multifamily, uh, fix and flips, wholesaling, which you ended up going with, why did you end up going with wholesaling? It was really for two reasons. The first was because I was going to jump into it full time, I needed some active income. So while my long-term strategy is to eventually acquire rental properties, you know, in the beginning, I definitely needed just to be able to make some money right away through wholesaling or flipping is another way to, to do that. The reason I decided to go with wholesaling, the second reason is simply because I wanted to be able to control the deal. You know, as uh, a self-employed investor who started my own business, you know, it's very hard for me to get a loan right now from a traditional bank simply because I haven't been doing it long enough and I don't have two years worth of tax returns and that type of stuff. So, if I can control the deal, I can sometimes try to work out uh, creative financing, seller financing, some other way for me to acquire properties. So it's not that I, I looked at everything you could do in real estate and said, oh, gosh, I would just love to be a wholesaler. But doing my own marketing and wholesaling is a way for me to control the deal, uh, which is important for me. So whenever I go out to uh, talk with people, I'm always thinking in the back of my mind, is there a way that I can somehow acquire this property for myself? And if not, then I wholesale it, which is what I've done so far. Let's talk about the five deals you did in 2015. What was the first? Uh, the first was uh, probably the easiest deal I've done. Uh, you know, I did some direct marketing for a couple months and finally got, uh, you know, had several phone calls, went out and talked to some people. 
And then I finally had this woman call me. She lived in Canada and she had this property that she had inherited years before, I think from her grandmother. She never set foot in it. It was a rental property or a local property management company had been uh, managing it for her. And for some tax reasons or whatever, she just wanted to get rid of it and a couple of other properties she owned in the U.S. So she, she called me up and she literally over the phone was like, you know, I think the property is worth about $96,000. Uh, but if we can avoid realtor commissions and stuff, we'll make it $86,000. I know it needs some repairs. So let's lock on, knock off another 10 for that. So now we're down to $76,000. And I just really want to sell it quickly. So I'll knock off another 10. So how about 66000 So she just kind of, huh. she just kind of came down. I mean, she was a motivated seller. She knew exactly what she wanted. She came down in price and this was all over the phone. And I thought to myself, wow, this, you know, this is actually, <laughs> this is so yeah, easy. <laughs> this is so easy. This is what a motivated seller actually sounds like. And for those people who are, who are trying to do this and her new, I know a lot of times on the phone, you can't really tell if somebody's motivated. Once you actually talk to a motivated seller, you can tell that it's a completely different conversation. You'll start to recognize mm-hmm. those calls. So I went out and looked at the house, I think probably an hour later, maybe the tenants let me in. And, um, oh no, it was the next day. Actually, I'm sorry. What happened was it was even more interesting. She told me that there was uh, somebody working at the property management company who was also interested in the house. And I said, well, let me do some research on my end. This was a mistake. The first mistake I made, well, first of many mistakes I've made. I said, well, let me do some research on my end and get back to you to, within the next 24 hours. So I hung up the phone with her. I got online, you know, started pulling comps, looking at stuff. And I thought to myself, okay, this actually sounds like there could be a deal here. It doesn't quite fit the numbers, but it just feels like there's a deal here. And so I waited until the next day to get back to her. And I called her back the next morning and said, you know, I'd like, I am interested in it. I'd love to come out and take, I'll take a look at it. When can I do that? And she said, well, actually, I just received an offer last night from a person at the property <laughs> management company. She said, but it's not what I wanted. And I told them that I would give you 24 hours to get back to me. So I'm, I want to stick to that. And I thought, okay, this is great. This is actually a woman who's, you know, she's sticking to her word. She told me she'd give me 24 hours to get back to her. I really appreciated that. So that's when I went out there right away to look at the property. And I called her from my car and made her, uh, I think I offered her 63 and I knew the other offer had come in somewhere in the low 60s because I could tell, you know, she already told me she wanted 66. And she said, well, can I have an hour to think about it? And I went up to 64 and she said, okay, let's do it. So it happened fairly quickly, but I almost lost it. I mean, she could have easily just taken the other offer for 61 or 62 and not given me time to get back to her. And in reality, I should have called her back immediately or I should have just gone out there right away because I, I felt that it was a deal. And now when I talk to sellers on the phone, if I feel like it's a deal, I just make the appointment right then and go out and see it. So, uh, so yeah, that's how I that's how I sort of got it under contract. How how did she find you? Uh, through direct mail, I was had sent out uh, some yellow letters uh, through a local marketer, Jerry Puckett, and uh, had done a couple months of that. And you know, she was uh, on an absentee owner list out of town, which is what a lot of people are mailing to. And I think it just uh, you know landed in her mailbox uh, on the right week that she was ready to sell. And when she said, "Can I uh, tell you in an hour?" you immediately followed up in that same conversation with uh, an increased price? Yeah, I went up $1,000 to 64 just because I felt like I felt comfortable doing that. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't remember at this point if I had in my mind a, a top number that I would go to. I knew she'd take 66. So I was just trying to get, you know, a little bit below that. And I knew that I actually felt fairly comfortable because there was, you know, it was my first deal. And looking back, at, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, because there was another bidder who worked for a property management company who had made an offer I knew in the low 60s, I knew that I was in the right range. You know, it wasn't like I was overpaying dramatically or anything. So that actually gave me some comfort in in making that first offer and getting that deal. 
All right. And uh, what did you end up doing with the property? I ended up wholesaling it, uh, although I, I tried to figure out other ways to do it. But uh, the other mistake I made is I agreed to give her a 14-day close. So I only had two weeks to sell the property, which on my first deal uh, was a little <laughs> crazy. And I ended up partnering with another wholesaler in town who has uh, a, a bit of a niche where he, a lot of other wholesalers bring him deals and he has a large list of buyers and he kind of manages that for you. So I partnered with him. He sent it out to his list, did a showing, had several buyers show up, and then we just split the wholesale fee uh, accordingly. What were the prices? Yeah, so I bought it for 64 and we got an offer at 76 and that's the one we accepted. So it was about a $12,000 deal split between the two of us. And looking back, I probably would have split it differently, but I was just so happy to have that first deal now and, and have it done. And, uh, you know, I've definitely, I've used him again on a couple of deals, one that didn't go through. Uh, and I would certainly use him again in the future. I think people shouldn't be afraid to partner, you know, yeah, you may be splitting the, your earnings a little bit, but if that's the way you need to, to move the deal, then that's what you have to do. So you made 6,000. Yes. Yeah. Made 6,000 on it at what, what month or what day, if you remember day and month, did this close? Closed on February 1st or February 2nd, I think. Okay. And when did you send out your first direct mail letter? Uh, it was in October. So the first direct mail went out in October. Uh, another round went out in December and she called me probably the first week or second week of January, I think it was. Um, so she'd received, I think, two letters from me at that point. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then the she she talked to you in late January and then in Right. Yeah, yeah. 14 days. Yeah. 14 days. I can do the math. I can do that math. I know. In 14 days, they closed on, you closed on February 2nd. Yeah. I've never, I was so stressed out during that, but it felt so good just to get, you know, the one deal down and out of the way. And I got to tell you, I learned so much in that deal. Just the first time, first time actually executing a contract, the first time trying to deal with buyers, the first time going through closing. And it's amazing once you, once you get out there and finally do a couple of deals, how much more you learn than if you're just you know sitting at home reading books all day. And how much did it cost to do each round of direct mail? Oh, uh, back then, I think I w- it was a smaller list. I think it was 500 names is what I started with. And it cost about a dollar a piece, a little over a dollar a piece. So I spent, in order to get that deal, I spent probably eleven or $1,200 up to that point um, to get that. And what was your thought process in December or even early January before you had gotten a deal after you had sent out those two rounds? It can definitely be nerve wracking when you're getting started because when you're investing in direct mail, I mean, you have to be willing to pay for a few months and know that it it could be a few months before you get your first deal, especially if you're dealing with a smaller list. If you're only mailing to 500 people or 250 people or sometimes even a thousand people, you have to commit to several months of direct mail because it's usually not until you know, your fifth or sixth mailing that you start getting uh, a really good, a better response. So for me, you know, definitely putting some money up front and just sort of hoping and having faith that it would work uh, was, was a little bit nerve wracking. But, you know, I had been getting calls and I had gone out and looked at some houses and I had made a couple of offers that were, that were rejected. But uh, so I knew that, you know, it was working and it was just waiting for that first deal, you know, definitely took some patience. For the offers that got rejected, do you know what they ended up doing? Oh, it's been so long. I think some of them probably just, you know, at the beginning, again, I couldn't really tell who was truly motivated and who wasn't. And so some of the offers, I think people weren't necessarily that serious about selling. I think a couple of the other offers I got completely outbid, which still happens today. There's there's so many people doing 
wholesaling and doing what I do, every person that I mail to is receiving letters from other people as well. And I find that if I go into a deal and there are other people bidding on it as well, I, I'm never going to get it because there are just people out there who are, uh, you know, turnkey operators, hedge funds, uh, investors who are just plunking cash down into properties and they're always willing to pay more than I am. So what, what did that house end up being worth uh, that, that sold? You bought it for 64, sold for 76. What do you think it was worth? You know, I think it needed it needed a ton of work. I say a ton of work now. Now that I've seen more houses, it wasn't terrible. That was pretty messy. It probably needed fifteen thousand dollars, maybe twenty grand worth of work. And I would say today, if it were to be sold, probably around one hundred five or one hundred ten. So, okay, so they're they're making about ten thousand, yeah, or they, so on. Yeah, it. and they kept it as a rental property. Um, and I, the guy that ended up buying it from me, I, I ended up developing a pretty good relationship with him, and he and I have talked frequently since then. Uh, you know, he, he tries to throw some deals my way. If he sees them, he's always looking for other deals too. So we are trying to find ways to, to partner together as well. Uh, but yeah, he's keeping it as a rental property and is getting pretty good rents from it. And then after that first deal, uh, how long until your second deal? Uh, I think another couple months. I'm trying, I'm trying to think back now. You know, at some point you just look at so many houses, you forget when you look at which houses. I think a couple months probably March or April was my second deal. Um, and that was that direct mail? That was through direct mail as well. It was actually uh, a probate mailing that I did. It wasn't yellow letters. I was doing my own white letters. I had uh, just downloaded some, I had researched probate online. Uh, people in the public record who'd gone through probate, you can do it online in Dallas. And I developed a list and I was mailing to them uh, in sort of the same, you know, hey, I know you're going through probate. I want to buy your house. And that's how I got that lead. And that deal, uh, was really an interesting deal. And it's probably my favorite deal so far because it was incredibly complicated. There were seven different sellers, uh, who had to sign on to everything because of some title issues, you know, with inheritance and everything. Uh, the house was vacant and needed some work. Uh, you know, only four of the sellers lived in Dallas. Uh, <laughs> my buyer actually lived in, lives in Tokyo You know, he's investing abroad. It was his first purchase, uh, as a rental property, you know, he had some problems with his hard money lenders. I had a lot of issues with the title company with communications and stuff. The deal almost fell apart numerous times, including the day of closing. I was actually the day that we were supposed to close. I was at closing with one of the sellers uh, where he was signing the closing documents. And I was actually having him also sign an extension because I knew we weren't gonna be able to close until the next week. Uh, and so there were just, at some point I thought yeah, it's almost not worth it. <laughs> um, but you know, I, did, I made probably eight or 9,000 on that deal. Uh, but it took, uh, that took a long time and it was a lot of work uh, over several weeks just to get under contract, dealing with all the title issues and probate, and then, you know, finally, finally getting to close. And one of the sellers almost walked away at closing too. So it was, it was a huge learning experience. I really enjoyed that deal. But again, with that deal, what's really interesting about it is because I made, uh, again, I made some connections. So the people who, the investor who bought the deal from me and another local investor I know who kind of helped broker the deal, you know, I've, uh, been talking with both of them about, uh, free, you know, frequently about how we can work together again. So I just made some good connections there. And then with the sellers on that deal too, you know, one of the sellers, uh, the one who almost walked away at closing, we had, there's a misunderstanding about probation of property taxes, which we had gone over and explained it was in the, the contract and everything, but you know, she just, she missed it. She forgot about it, whatever. And, and she was willing to walk away from the deal if I didn't pony up and pay the property taxes, what she was supposed to do. 
And I remember that because it was we were closing on a Friday morning. It was pouring rain outside. I was the title company trying to get the stuff done. She was calling because she was in she was out of state and you know threatening not to close. And I could have taken a hard line and said, you know what, it's in the contract. You know that's just the way it is. Uh, you know if you walk away, then you can explain to the rest of your family why the deal fell through. Or I could just pay it myself. It was like eight hundred dollars. And at that point, with everything else that had gone wrong, I said, you know what, I think this is truly just a misunderstanding on her part. I'll go ahead and pay it because uh, I was making enough money anyway, and there were no hard feelings from that. And it ended up being a good thing. And this is why I think investors should really you know, think long-term about when they're, what they're doing when they're building relationships. Because one of the other sellers who lives in Dallas, he actually has several other rental properties. And if, you know, if I had taken a hard line at closing and left with both of them not liking me, uh, you know, I would not have a good relationship with him. But because I you know, paid for the property taxes and we closed okay, and I followed up after closing, thanking them and everything and showing them pictures of the house after it was renovated, he's called me. He has several rental properties. He actually called me a few weeks later saying, hey, I got a rental property I want to sell. Do you want to come take a look at it? And I went and take a look at it. And he, he decided not to sell it right then because he had too much money in it. But I know now because I've developed that relationship with him that I'll be at the top of his list whenever he does decide to liquidate some of his other properties. So it's important to, you know, it's not just about squeezing every dollar out of every deal and taking a hard line on everything. Uh, but if you can, if you think there's an opportunity to work with people in the future, you need to make sure that you're building that relationship for the long term. And you never know, you never know when that's going to happen when somebody you work a deal with is going to provide you with a referral later on. And I know it seems like it's a very large world and, uh, you know, things might not get back to you, but it's actually very, it's a very small world and, uh, you know, your reputation is important. And if you, if you leave a bad taste in people's mouths, that can actually get around. I was amazed the first few deals I did. Uh, I think, you know, the third deal that I did, the guy that I went out and started talking with him, it, it turns out that his children worked with my brother in uh, a mortgage company, you know, and even the first deal that I did, the tenant who was living in the property, uh, my stepmom knew her. And I mean, Dallas is a city of 7 million people. So you have to think, what are the odds of this? But it's amazing that uh, it's amazing how, uh, how that happens. You can find people that you actually have connections to. How did you meet the buyer in the second deal who lived in Tokyo? Uh, through another investor who was helping him try to find properties to invest with in Dallas. And I knew her uh, from some online forums that I'm involved in. And so I had emailed her uh, information on the property. And she said, hey, I think I got a buyer. I actually had several buyers for that deal, uh, several full price offers for it. Uh, it was just in, a, it was in Arlington. It was a good part of town. It was near university. And... I was a little nervous when I got into it, but it turned out being a good deal. And I didn't realize just how, just how much people wanted it. You know, I had a full price offer from a hedge fund and a couple other buyers as well, but I decided to go with the buyer I did because he did offer full price for what I was asking. And because I had wanted to work with this other investor for a while. And so I knew that if I, you know, did the deal with them, that that might lead to future deals uh, as well. And what was the online forum that you met that other investor? Oh, it was through biggerpockets.com, which I know you're familiar with. Yep. Absolutely. Big fan of bigger pockets. Yep. All right. Well, Chad, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? I think it's to, as I sort of said, you know, think long term, uh, have patience, be consistent, and you know, realize that if you are in this for the long haul, uh, you need to build a business for the long haul, build a reputation for the long haul, and build relationships that are going to last because that's you can only do so much through direct mail. Eventually, you're going to need leads from referrals and from other people and what you might think of as kind of repeat customers. People don't often think of it that way. Um, when they're just selling, especially wholesales, they think of it as very transactional in nature. But I think this is really a relationship business. So I, I encourage people to really think about building relationships for the long term. 
Very quickly, can you give us the an overview of deals three, four, and five? Uh, those were all wholesale deals too, uh, in various ways. Deal three, I almost wasn't able to wholesale, and I actually had to go back to the buyer, to the seller, and get him to come down in price a little bit uh, because I just honestly I just misjudged my numbers and I misjudged the demand for the deal. But I had been honest with him up front about everything. He knew exactly what I was doing, and, and he was willing to do that to get the deal done. And then deals four and five were or wholesale deals the same way, just kind of finding a property. The fourth deal was very good. I ended up making a good amount of money on it. So they're all similar types of deals. With uh, deal number four, what were the numbers? That one, I was able to get under contract for about 50, and I wholesaled it for 65. And uh, it needed a tremendous amount of work. It probably needed uh, about 35 to 40,000 in work. And then the ARV was probably around 130, 135. So it was a very it. it was a very good deal. It was very flippable. Um, you know, the reason that I didn't flip it is, and the reason I haven't flipped anything is because the way that the market is just so skewed right now. You know, I could take it down myself and use hard money and hire a contractor and flip it and spend four months doing that and make twenty five thousand dollars, or I could wholesale in two weeks and make fifteen thousand dollars with very little risk. It's just the way the market is. People are paying eighty to eighty five percent of ARV for properties. So if you find a good deal. I can make almost as much money wholesaling it as if I were to flip it myself. Did you find deal three, four, and five via direct mail as well? Yes, it was all through it was all through direct mail. And how much are you spending right now on direct mail? So I just increased it a couple months ago when I realized I just did not have enough leads coming in. And part of that is because everybody's doing direct mail and it's very competitive. So now I'm sending out about two thousand letters a month and spending about two thousand dollars. So it's getting it's getting more expensive, but I am getting more phone calls and more leads from that. The winter's a little slow right now, but uh, it should pick up in January. How long have you been spending the two thousand, sending out two thousand a month? I think since September. And and what is a typical response rate when you send out two thousand? Uh, it's pretty low. <laughs> I got to be honest. You know, per mailing, it's maybe one percent. Uh, you know, it, it just depends. Uh, but it's pretty. Uh, it could be even lower than that right now, especially around the holidays. And I've just noticed that it just continues to get more and more competitive. And as I said before, everybody that I mail to, some people I mail to who call and yell at me to take them off my list, you know, they're getting, some of these absentee owners have been getting one letter every day for the past three years and they're just sick of it. So there's a lot of people out there doing this. And so you just have to be consistent. And as long as your letter lands in their mailbox, the week that they say they're finally ready to sell, that's when they call you. And that's, it's just a numbers game and that's what you're hoping for. You've got a really nice looking website. Do you have a team that actively does SEO? Uh, no, it's just me for now. <laughs> but that that's actually something I realized a few months ago when I when I upped my direct mail and kind of looked at my business broadly. I said, you know what, I can't rely just on direct mail for my leads. I need to build leads from other sources. And so I'm focusing on referrals, just looking within my professional and personal networks to how I can uh, you know, get the word out and, and get more people uh, to send referrals my way. And then also focusing on some SEO and, and it's not just SEO really at this point, there's so many websites out there, you have to provide really good content. So my goal is to actually start providing actual usable content through the website for sellers, for investors that can drive traffic to the website. And will hopefully that will pick up. I've already noticed just a little bit of a spike, uh, in traffic since I, I did it, redid it a few months ago. It's also helps legitimize you with investors. Uh, you know, a house I looked at just a few days ago, I asked her, you know, why she contacted me instead of some other people. And she said, well, because I, I could find your website and you had a website. So that's why I called you. 
So it, yeah. it is very helpful uh, when people can find you online. So they know you're not just some random person, you know, doing this on the did, side. It looks like you have an actual business, you know. Did did you uh, do the design yourself or did you hire someone? No, I used uh, Weebly actually to do it. And it was pretty, you know, it's just kind of drag and drop stuff uh, to make it happen. So it was all me. I mean, one day once I'm making, you know, enough income, that's something I will certainly farm out to somebody else who is far better at it than I am (laughs) as far as uh, getting website design and and SEO stuff. Yeah, well, you've got uh, an interview that you can include on the blog. So there's new content there. One one tip that I've I've picked up and I've implemented in my business, I think it'd be helpful for you, is um, having a team that's doing SEO and uh, it, it, it can be as inexpensive as a couple hundred dollars a month if you go through Upwork. Sure. Um, and uh, I, I have a, a team that's doing that right now for me. And um, while it's too early to determine how much of an effect it's, it's having, um, I anticipate in the next six to 12 months it's going to have a major effect. Yeah, that's definitely good to know. And and for website, as you just said, it is a long-term thing. It's not like you can redo your website and have it all of a sudden, you know, spike in traffic overnight. It's Google especially likes, you know, content over the long run and and keeping at it for several months at a time. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you need money for your flipping project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, join me in subscribing to the Family Office Podcast the host, Richard Wilson, you can learn more about him, episode 447. The reason why you'll want to subscribe and listen to this podcast is he talks about how billionaire families think and how to attract the ultra-wealthy into your business. The Family Office Podcast. Best ever book you've read? Real estate, Gary Keller, the millionaire real estate investor. Although non-real estate, I really love 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And best ever listeners, you can check out um, a co-author of that book, uh, Jay Papazan, in episode 212. Um, he was interviewed on on the show. Best ever personal growth experience and what you learn from it? I think it's what I'm doing right now. You know, just starting my own business, realizing how hard it is to do that from scratch. And, you know, it's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of responsibility. And you just have to have the stubbornness to, to keep at it and uh, and keep going no matter what. Best ever deal you've done? I would say it was the second deal that I discussed just because I made so many connections through it and learned so much through it that I feel like it's been paying dividends uh, well beyond the money that I made from it. Best ever way you like to give back? Really being a resource for others as they're getting started. You know, as I mentioned, I'm active on biggerpockets.com and I, I see people out there trying to do, or they, they are where I was a year ago, and so I'm more than happy to, to talk to them and to, to contribute and just help in any way that I can answer questions. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? I think not following up with people good enough in the beginning. You know, just because somebody uh, says no doesn't mean that that's a no forever. And just because they're not ready to sell right now doesn't mean they won't be ready to sell in the future. And I think, you know, even though after I made some offers to people and they said no and rejected me, I followed up a little bit too late and realized that uh, there's a couple of deals there that I might I could have gotten if I had just been better at follow-up. So now I've developed a system where I really do follow up uh, a lot more with people, even after they say no. And what's the best ever place the best ever listeners can reach you? 
Uh, two places. You reference my website. It's benedictbrothers.com. You can find me there via email and phone. And you can also find me at chadbenedict.com. That has links to all of my social media, so you can follow me online. Sweet. Well, Chad, thank you for sharing with us the uh, the experiences that you've had in the first year of doing real estate full-time with a focus on wholesaling. And I love how we went through the majority of your deals in detail. I mean, the first two we went through in detail and three through five, uh, you gave us an overview. And I, I love that. I, I love hearing the the inner workings, uh, the drama, yes. the, <laughs> the excitement and, and timelines too. I think timelines are important. So frequently we can, we hear interviews of people who are doing wonderful things, but we don't get the actual timeline yeah. of how long it took them to do it and what was happening behind the scenes. We hear the outcome, but very rarely do we dig into you know uh, what it took to get to that point. And uh, on your first deal, you sent out 500 uh, mailers in October, then you sent out another 500. So at this point, you spent $1,000 in December, and you're celebrating the holidays, uh, New Year's, etc., and you still don't have a deal. Right. Yeah. And your family's probably like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what's going on? It's like, well, uh, I believe believe in me. Trust yeah. me, everyone. It's going to happen. And, and then you finally have a call from our friends up north, uh, a Canadian, and uh, she is motivated. She knows what she wants, and uh, you're able to strike a deal. And I like how you got into the mistakes that you made along the way. One of them is you waited 24 hours to get back to her, and uh, the difference now is that you do not wait 24 hours right. to a um, make a decision if it's a deal exactly. And then also uh, not following up with people at the beginning. Um, you, you you've noticed that there could have been. Uh, some deals that uh, were left on the, uh, left on the table, and I know from my experience, both personally um, reaching out to people and then also uh, interviewing guests, that's absolutely the case. There are some deals that were left on the table if if we don't have a system for following up, um, because I, I've I've heard from guests on here who that that's the really the primary way they get their deals yeah. is they just have a system for following up with with people after they're told not right now. Yeah. Um, which is what they hear, by the way. It's not right now, not a no. It's yeah. just not right now. Um, and then also the probate mailings and the white, the white letters um, versus the yellow letters that you're sending out. And um, you're just, just focusing on also your approach of the long-term uh, relationships versus the one-off transactions. And, and really that it's going to boil down to uh, how you stay in touch with them now in year two through forever right. um, and the system that you put in place which it sounds like it's going to align with the system for following up. So um, thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your best ever advice with the best ever listeners. Great conversation, and we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, Joe. It's been fun. If you need money for your flipping project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, join me in subscribing to the Family Office Podcast. The host, Richard Wilson, you can learn more about him, episode 447. The reason why you'll want to subscribe and listen to this podcast is he talks about how billionaire families think and how to attract the ultra wealthy into your business. The Family Office Podcast.